You are listening to Revolver Podcast. Want to grow your own weed but not sure where to get the seed? Go to bcbuddepot.com. For nearly 15 years, BC Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks, offering over 50 strains of top quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like Godbud, The Perps, BC Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, BC Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade. So you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for indica or sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto-flowering, BC Bud Depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle. But don't take my word for it. Check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code BLAZIN420 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. BC Bud Depot home of cannabis champions since 2002. Please check your local, state, and national laws before ordering. It's time to roll up those joints, pack those bowls, and fire up those nails. Because you're listening to Blazing with Bobby Black. What's up, Stonerverse, and welcome to another edition of Blazin'. I'm your host, Bobby Black. You know, nowadays, it's pretty easy to get a hold of killer weed here in the United States, with medical marijuana being legal in over half of the states of the Union, and adult recreational use being legal in four states and the District of Columbia. There's pretty much killer weed being grown all over the country. Even in the states where it's not legal, you know, there's still a black market. Basically, if you know where to look, you're getting some pretty good weed. Most of the people growing weed nowadays who know what they're doing are growing juicier, tastier, fatter nugs than ever, and uh, they're pretty accessible. But you know, back in the 60s and 70s, it wasn't that easy to get a hold of good weed. In fact, Good weed was extremely hard to find, and the only way that anyone got a hold of decent weed in the United States was thanks to smugglers. Smugglers were the OGs of the pop movement. These were guys and gals who were willing to risk uh, everything, their lives, their freedom, to smuggle in tons and bales and blocks of weed from Mexico and South America by plane, by boat, any way they could, really, uh, so that they could make money and so that People who wanted good smoke could have it. You know, the founder of High Times, Tom Fursad, was one of the most infamous smugglers in the country. And he actually used smuggling money to create High Times. But there were lots of other smugglers, some of whom operated on a bigger scale and were even more notorious. My guest today is arguably the most notorious pot smuggler in U.S. history and also 
the longest-serving pot prisoner in U.S. history. If you've ever seen the documentary Square Grouper, you might have heard this gentleman's name. His name is Robert Platshorn. Uh, Robert, thanks for joining us today. Always a pleasure to join you, Bobby. So let me give the uh, let me give the listeners a little background on you. You and your partner, uh, Robert Meinster, were uh, some of the biggest pot smugglers back in the 70s. You were reputed. Reputed. <laughs> reputed. Uh, you guys were... I wish we were, because then I wouldn't have come out of prison broke. But we were certainly reputed to be. I mean, they said we did as much as three million pounds, which is very flattering today, but back then it was scary. Sure, sure. I mean, they said, I think the figure I had seen online was uh, 500 tons, $1.4 million was the figure they threw out when you guys were busted by the DEA and the FBI. Yeah, and, and then they kept upping it. And the last figure they used in court was 3 million pounds. And, and I was just astounded that they could even say anything like that. Wow, that does sound like a lot. Yeah, <laughs> quite a bit. <laughs> But they used to say anything back then. So, so you guys now they're a little more careful. Yeah, yeah. So you you guys were busted by the DEA slash FBI. I guess it was like a joint operation in 1978. Is that right? Yeah, I think it was late 78. And and they dubbed you guys the Black Tuna Gang. Now, uh, explain to the listeners a little about what where that term came from. Uh, the first time I saw it was on the door of the DEA evidence room when I went there with uh, my attorney to inspect the evidence. And it said, Black Tuna War Room. And I didn't even know uh, anybody had declared war. But <laughs> they had a big picture of me with a bluefin tuna that was 650 pounds. I had caught it in the tournament. They, not knowing the difference, decided it was a blackfin tuna because it looks dark. And uh, they dubbed us the Black Tuna Gang. They they actually swiped the picture by burglarizing uh, our office, yeah, which is where a lot of the evidence came from. Back in those days, they were wide open. They, they burglarized all our homes. They left poop on the cocktail tables. I mean, it, oh, it was really... Uh, a wild, nasty era. Oh, man. Tell me a little about, before before you got caught, tell me a little about some of uh, what you guys did, like your operation and, and runs you guys did. We brought everything out of the Santa Marta area, the near coast, and we were willing to pay a good price over there for the top end weed. And we were after Santa Marta Gold, which was moral legend and a reality because there hadn't been that much brought into the country. There was a limited amount uh, grown around Santa Marta because it's a built-up area. But there are farms up in the hills above Santa Marta that grew this really fabulous, legendary, delicious, sticky, gorgeous gold pot. Uh, it eventually became the mother strain most of the good sativa hybrids and, and almost all of the, the medical strains because it was such a rich strain. FYI, it was about 40% seed weight. It had these big, juicy seeds inside. I know today uh, most people have never even seen a seed, whereas back then it, it was 
it was part of the ceremony to sit there and uh, clean out the seeds on a shoebox uh, lid. <laughs> you know, today kids have no idea what it means to walk around with one of those little brown holes in your shirt or in your pants <laughs> that the cops used to be able to spot. Because you couldn't get all the seeds, and some of the little ones were, would stay in the joint. And when the, the heat hit it, it would go pop and land somewhere on you and instantly brown, burn a little brown hole. And the cops could spot those, and, and they know who the, who the heads were. Things have changed in every way, but uh, the first smuggle we did, which is the first chapter of my book, Black Tuna Diaries, was at DC-3. The object was to bring in 5,000 pounds, and at the last minute, the head pilot had uh, reservations, and I ended up flying the three in. I had never flown anything bigger than the small Cessna, but it was fun learning while I go. And uh, we did a few plane loads, some small ones, 1,400 pounds, 1,200 pounds. And uh, then we got in boats. And we would meet a Colombian trawler somewhere on the uh, eastern side of the Bahamas, load up a couple of beautiful sports fishermen, uh, boats that today would be like a million-dollar boat. Back then, they were only a quarter or a half a million dollar boats, but the kind of boats that people use for sport fishing. And we put uh, anywhere from twelve to 15,000 pounds in each boat. So our big loads were really only 30,000 pounds, not 300,000 pounds, <laughs> as as legend would, would have it. Every single smuggle is actually added up in, in the book, everyone's mentioned, and, and how much we brought in, and, and people who read it know what we really did, as opposed what, to what we were supposed to have done. But it was great pot. Uh, back in the day, you could buy Colombian mountain pot, which was good. I mean, you know, Colombian rays, uh in Colombia for 12 to maybe $25 a pound. We were willing to pay $55, $60 a pound for the good Santa Marta gold. So naturally, the grower saved it for us. I mean, it, it wasn't a genius move. But when we brought it back, back in those days, Colombian regs were anywhere, you know, for somebody who came in and wanted a thousand or two thousand pounds, was 180 up to about 225 a pound. Our pot went for 280 up to about 310 pound. It was just that much better. And it went out much quicker. Uh, our loads were gone almost instantly, while the big uh, Cuban loads, the big Colombian regs, would wait until the good stuff was gone before they could sell theirs. It, it was interesting times in Miami. <laughs> and we were actually able to... Uh, determine our prices by what it said in high times in uh, trans high. We never really thought those those figures were accurate, but they were a guideline for everybody to go to. 
Right. So what you're, you're referring to, for those listeners who don't know, is uh, in High Times Magazine back in the day, and, and to this day, actually, there's a, a page called Trans High Market Quotations, which basically gives a rundown of the price of all different types of weed all across the country and, and, and other countries sometimes as well. And uh, this is uh, – it's all readers uh, reader submitted and from what the editors were able to gather from the, you know, the grapevine, the underground – and uh, that's the gauge that you're saying you were using as a just as a barometer, kind of. Yeah, there was no other barometer back in those days. There was no other publication that, that would say anything about pot. So everything became high time centric. We operated for about three, three and a half years. Our goal, which by today's standard was mod- modest, was to make a million bucks a piece. There were actually three partners. Robbie and I, and, and then Gene Myers, who, who joined us a little bit later. Uh, and, and we made what we set out to, and we were retired for a year and a half when we got indicted. We were never caught. So they just pieced it but together we and then came caught. after you later. Yeah. Standard operating procedure was to turn everybody they could into a snitch. And it really wasn't hard for them to do that because the marijuana business then were not violent people. They were not people who had criminal records. There were a lot of graduate students and Cuban revolutionaries who were trying to get cash to go out. I mean, it it was uh, the gringo mobs and the Cuban mobs. So they caught up to you, and then you got indicted. And then what were you sentenced to? I was sentenced to 64 years. Wow. 31-year regular adult sentence and a 33-year kingpin sentence. I caught the first kingpin sentence that was given for pot. It was never meant to be used for pot. It was meant for uh, the French Connection case. But they found they could use the kingpin statute for almost any crime as they could RICO, which was meant for racketeering. And we had, I don't know, four or five RICO charges, and uh, the overall charge was under 848, the Kingpin statute, which was non-parolable back in the days when regular sentences were parolable. Amazing. And so, yeah, and, and under the old law, had we been sentenced uh, to fully parolable sentences, the most we could have served would have been 10 years, no matter how much they give you. You're eligible to, to be paroled even with a 100-year sentence after 10 years, provided you behaved yourself. However, they uh, were looking for a way to cement the relationship between the DEA and FBI. They needed each other badly. The DEA already had a bad reputation as, as a corrupt agency, and they had been working with customs. You know, the DEA was formed without arrest powers. They felt it might prevent corruption, which had been a problem with their predecessor, the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, or the BND. Right. So... They had to partner with somebody, and and their regular partner was U.S. Customs. But there were a lot of problems. Customs didn't 
want to be part of what the DEA was doing and the way they were operating illegally. So DEA needed a new partner. And the FBI, at the end of the Cold War, needed a new task. They couldn't go out and uh, chase make-believe communists, which they had been doing uh, for 20 years or more since the Second World War. Their task at the time was to stop uh, commercial espionage. Now, that's not too sexy. And it doesn't fit in with the DEA image of major crime fighter. So they wanted to be part of what the DEA was doing because it was so easy to catch people uh, who didn't have criminal backgrounds and, and most of whom were willing to turn in their associates. And so they tried real hard to make Galactina case such a sensational case, and they succeeded. Nobody had ever gotten in the kind of time that, that Robbie and I got, or and Gene, and I got the most time and, and served the most time. And how how much did you actually serve out of what you were sentenced? Twenty nine and a half years, just under thirty. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, well, I thought so too, but uh, obviously the judge didn't. Uh, when I was sentenced, and, and I said to you, the judge, I said, Your Honor, I'm, I'm 35 now. I don't know if I could finish that sentence. He said, Don't worry about it. He says, Just do what you can. <laughs> How nice of him. <laughs> oh, yeah, oh he, was, he was the right guy. His, his bag man came to us and wanted $3 million. And at that point, between us, we could maybe scrape up a million and a half because the money had been going into our businesses and homes. And uh, he took that as an insult and said, yeah, they're going to be sorry. Yeah. And, and yeah, we, we sure were sorry. I remember when you got out in 2008, um, I was very aware of you, um, not only from the Square Grouper movie, but also from, you know, High Times had covered you quite extensively over the years, uh, interviewed you and covered your story and uh, had actually led, you know, some of the charge to help try to get your sentence, you know, reduce and, and draw attention to the injustice of your case. But uh, I remember when you got out in 2008 and you and I uh, ran into each other, I think it was at the Seattle Cannabis Cup, um, and uh, you you had just gotten out and your, your very first thing on, on your uh, agenda was to become an activist and to, uh, you know, fight for legalization and, and to try to stop any, what, you know, what happened to you from ever happening to someone else. And I, I just had nothing but the utmost respect for you and for, for that, you know, and that's when you, you got heavily into activism and you started the silver tour shortly after, shortly after that, didn't you? Yeah. I, I spent about a year and a half looking for a niche where I could be effective. I'm a pragmatist, and, and I learned pragmatism in prison. You go for what is practical, for what you can achieve, and you take it in little pieces until you get what you want. I looked around, and I was very disappointed by uh, what happened in California when Prop 19 went down the drain. I looked at the exit polls in all the counties in, in California. And the one thing that was abundantly clear is Prop 19, full legalization, would have passed were it not for seniors. And that kind of knocked me for a loop because that's my generation. 
we invented marijuana for white people and non-jazz musicians. We <laughs> made upgrade weed available, and it became a popular thing. Before that, it really wasn't available. I mean, it, it was Tom Forsyth and, and my generation of smugglers that opened up markets all over the country and made people realize there was there was a good product available. But I realized then that nobody was talking to seniors. Nobody. They weren't included in the conversation. And what really spun me was that people who had seniors who had lived in California for years and years where they already had legal medical for, what, 15 years at that time, knew absolutely nothing about the benefits of medical marijuana for seniors. Everybody knew, yeah, it was good to treat glaucoma, and somebody, everybody had uh, a relative who needed it uh, to counteract the chemo, but they had no idea how important it could be for their everyday life, and nobody was telling them. And I looked around even more, and I, you know, I'm a director of Normal of Florida, Florida Normal, have been since the day I got out. But I looked around and I saw that no one, absolutely no one, was doing public education. Nobody was using mass media that went beyond the activist community or, or the pot smoking community to educate other people. And I said, wait a minute, I'm a pitchman. I've been doing this all my life. I made infomercials before Ron Pofield ever did. <laughs> and I'm a senior. My hair's the bright color. <laughs> and uh, so the Silver Tour was born. And I felt that if we could bring seniors out of the closet, plus most of them weren't really anti-marijuana, they felt that they couldn't come out publicly. So I had a dual purpose, educate them, and make them comfortable uh, with talking about marijuana and, and how much they like it and how much it does for them. I found my niche, and, and the Silver Tour was born. Uh, we started doing live shows. Originally, no senior community would let us in. You know, I wanted to go to the big senior community where they have a clubhouse and people are still alive and, and playing sports and uh, voting. Couldn't get into one, and I live in Florida where there's thousands. I couldn't even get in to do a show in the one I live in, an over 55 community. And I remember that uh, Reformed Judaism had medical marijuana as part of their platform, but they never had a platform <laughs> to talk with them. They had a platform, but not a platform. So I gave them a platform, and they were thrilled. I got calls from one rabbi after another. I picked the biggest, juiciest synagogues and put on live shows with the doctor, with the nurse, with patients, with an attorney to tell them how to change the law. And the secret ingredient of free buffet. <laughs> you want to put butts in seats, senior butts, a little free buffet ain't such a bad idea. <laughs> cost me about 1500 apiece to put on these shows. Uh, I got the money from donors, and I think they got a hell of a return. 
the first show I did, Wall Street Journal shows up. And they interview people going in, why are you here? You know, this is about marijuana. Well, my grandson sent me, or I came for the free buffet. Occasionally, somebody would actually say they were curious. And then they interviewed him going out. And this, this video is still up on uh, the uh, Wall Street Journal website. Going out, people were angry. They wanted to know, I'm an adult. Why can't I make up my own mind? Why can't I get this medicine? I believe what these doctors just told me. They were really upset. Well, what a great piece of video and what a great story it made on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And, and the next time, it was uh, CNN Money. They end up doing a special that's shown coast to coast. Hell of a return for a $1,500 show. And then, of course, you know, it was The Daily Show. And all of a sudden, all these senior communities who wouldn't let us in are calling us to come in. Why? Because their members, their people who live there, all of a sudden, they're telling them, hey, we heard about this show in the synagogue, we read about it in the newspaper, how about bringing in this show? We want to see it. So that crashed open the door. And then when uh, my parole officer uh, came down on me and said I couldn't travel anymore, uh, I put the show on TV as a video, Should Grandma Smoke Pot, and we ran it like an infomercial in a dozen different states on 20 different stations hundreds of times. And now teenagers are really out of the closet, Bobby. You see them everywhere. They're an important part of the movement. And that wasn't true when I got out of prison. That's that's definitely true. You know, when a politician sees seniors, he knows they vote their interests pretty much in a group. And they know that seniors always vote. In a by-election, they're almost the entire vote. Politicians, no matter how much money they have coming in to support them, can't get elected without the senior vote. In most places, certainly Florida, California, Arizona, any place with a, with a large aging population, which is almost every place. And so they are afraid of seniors. You know, the Silver Tour took 150 seniors from the Northeast Corridor to Washington to lobby the House of Representatives. They'd never seen seniors asking for pot before. <laughs> we lobbied 400 offices, people on canes and walkers and vets with all of their medals. First time they ever saw what they regard as voters grown up, demanding safe legal access. And a couple of months later, there was a, the first Holder memo. I'm sure there were a lot of other people pushing for it, but I think we put on the demonstration. And at the reception afterwards, we had a whole lot of senators and congressmen down there. and. I think they got the message, and and they were they already knew things had to start changing. I give uh, the Obama administration an awful lot of credit for being the first administration with the nuts to start taking it off the forbidden list. The the Holder memo, the second memo, uh, to a guy like me who was in prison for thirty years for pot, that's a really big deal when no other politician or president really held out 
any hope whatsoever. You knew whoever got in was still going to come down on cannabis the way their predecessor had and, and was afraid. So I knew during the second term some good things were going to happen. And you can imagine what it means to somebody like me when a president said, I want everybody with a nonviolent drug offense to apply for a sentence commutation. Yeah. You know how incredible that is? And then it gets rid of the totally corrupt and inept board that you used to have to apply to for a presidential pardon or commutation and, and who never entertained but a very, very few that pretty much had to fix in. I mean, it used to be you could buy a presidential commutation if you were rich enough. <laughs> anyway, uh, what Obama's done is a big deal to me, and uh, I think he, I, I know he made it possible for many states that were using the excuse we can't pass medical marijuana because we're afraid they're going to come arrest the governor and arrest the chief of police. You know, the feds are going to come. And that was their excuse. And after the Holder memo, that excuse was gone. So tell me um, tell me what you got going on now. Obviously, the Silver Tour is still going. And I know you, you had told me a little while ago that you were launching a, like a radio campaign uh, down in Florida. Tell me about what you have going on now looking into the future. Yeah. First of all, it's not down in Florida. Anything the Silver Tour's done has been done nationally. Uh, when we were running Should Grandma Smoke Pot on TV, most of the airings were not in Florida. It was in any state that really needed it or where we had a donor who was willing to pay for those TV spots. This year, 2016 is going to be a watershed year. We know we're going to make progress in a lot of states, but most people don't realize that the anti-marijuana people pulled millions and millions of dollars to stop or slow it down wherever they can. They're really planning to put the brakes on what we're doing. And the only way to overcome it is education. They're going to come out with all the old uh, reefer madness lies. But somebody has got to go public and tell people what the truth is. So the best way to reach the largest number of people for the least amount of money, and you know media is my thing, is radio. And where do you find the voter you need to reach? You find him on news talk stations. So I made a deal to buy thousands of spots at approximately five bucks a spot for a 60-second spot. And you can do a lot of educating in 60 seconds. Now think, who else is using mass media to try and overcome that so that 2016 is, is the year that we can say it's no longer federally prohibited? It's only the Silver Tour. Who else is using mass media? And why not? It's really an easy job to educate the public. They want to be educated. I spent the full time last year running the Silver Tour, planning that campaign, did a couple of live shows. But I don't know if people know it. Neither me nor anyone else at the Silver Tour has ever been paid a dime. 
Silver Tour is a 501c3 nonprofit. We're an educational organization. Every cent we've taken in has gone to media and education, including half of what I've made on my book in the last few years. But I'm doing what I love to do. We're making progress, and it feels good. And I don't look back on the 30 years in prison except to tell stories. Yeah. So, let, so if people want to get more involved with uh, with the Silvator or any other things uh, that you're working on, or if they want to just learn more about you and your story, your history, uh, where could they go? What what websites? What social media can they find you at? TheSilvator.org. But anybody who uh, does a web search on my name, Robert Plackshorn, will find virtually hundreds of, of articles and videos and movies and all sorts of stuff. Well, um, thank you so much, uh, Robert, for taking time to talk to us today. Uh, for those of you out there that are interested, The Black Tuna Diaries, you can find that online. That's Robert's book. Um, and you can find him, uh, like he said, at thesilvator.org. And uh, he's on Facebook and Twitter and all that uh, great stuff. And don't forget the new book, Greed and Evil, the story of the anti-marijuana people. And where can they find the new book? Anywhere, Amazon? Greedandevil.com. Oh, greedandevil.com. Well, there you go. Yes, both books are there. All right. Well, thanks so much, uh, Robert. And again, Happy New Year to you. And to you, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Bobby Black, on Facebook and Instagram at Bobby Black 420. Be sure to check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash blazingwithbb. Give us a like, leave us some feedback. Be sure to tune in and talk up with us again next week when my guest will be Scott Reach from Rare Dankness Seeds. Until then, this is Bobby Black saying, blaze on, brothers and sisters. Want to grow your own weed but not sure where to get the seed? Go to bcbuddepot.com. For nearly 15 years, BC Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks, offering over 50 strains of top-quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like Godbud, The Perps, BC Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, BC Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade. So you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for indica or sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto-flowering, BC Bud Depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle. But don't take my word for it. Check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code BLAZIN420 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. BC Bud Depot home of cannabis champions since 2002. Please check your local, state, and national laws before ordering.